Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Welcome to the Healthy Gut Podcast with Rebecca Coombs, the place where you can learn how to achieve a happy, healthy gut. Here's what's coming up on today's show. Hey, just a quick note before the show starts. I'm busy working on season two of the Healthy Gut Podcast, which will return in 2018. So until then, I'll be sharing some of my favorite and most popular shows with you until we return for season two. Enjoy the show. Welcome to the Healthy Gut Podcast, Dr. Michael Ruscio. It's wonderful to have you back. Thanks for having me back. It's nice to be here. Yeah, and today we're going to be talking all about the thyroid. It's something that uh, you and I are both very interested in, and I know many of my listeners are interested in knowing more about it. So let's just get straight into it. Why are you so interested in our thyroids? Well, for, uh, I guess, initially very selfish personal reasons, when I went through my personal health challenges gosh, maybe 15 years ago now, the the first thing that I thought I had was hypothyroidism. And it turned out that I did not have hypothyroidism, that everything with my thyroid was fine, but I had all the symptoms that look like hypothyroidism actually being driven by a problem in my gut. That didn't stop me from trying all sorts of self-help thyroid protocols and yeah, maybe feeling a little better here and there, but spending a lot of time and money spinning my wheels and not really getting any better, only to realize that the symptoms that I was convinced were being driven by my thyroid were actually coming from my gut. And it's not to say that sometimes the thyroid symptoms aren't coming from the thyroid, but I certainly see a lot of people who think they have a thyroid problem when they actually don't don't or think they still have a thyroid problem even when their thyroid hormone levels are generally normal and keep pursuing deeper and deeper down the thyroid channel only to months or sometimes years later find their way into my office and we figure out it was actually a problem in the gut that was causing the thyroid-like symptoms that they were having. So it started off as a personal interest, but now it's something I'm pretty passionate about because it can save people, if, if we identify this quickly enough, we can really save people from a lot of um, heartache and, and, and misguided effort. What are some of the symptoms people might um, attribute to thyroid that could actually be coming from the gut? Well, you know, that's one of the challenges because the symptoms here are nonspecific. So there's... In my opinion, certainly not thyroid. Uh, th- there's certainly not a a group of gut symptoms that also look like thyroid symptoms. There's there's they're just too broad, and so 
we can't really approach it like that. I, I do have some thoughts that can help people with how to navigate this, but just purely by looking at symptoms, trying to figure this out can be very challenging, other than maybe one general remark, which I think is maybe somewhat self-evident, but I'll, I'll make the remark anyway. If someone has digestive symptoms and they have other symptoms that are non-digestive, let's say fatigue, brain fog, insomnia, thinning hair, dry skin, then you should definitely start with improving those digestive symptoms and then reevaluate those other non-digestive symptoms. Mm, and I think that that's uh, really great advice. Um, and I see in the in many of the SIBO chat forums online that uh, people can get quite fixated on the thyroid, thinking this is the this is it, this is the thing that I haven't been addressing yet, and it's going to be my savior. And uh, and then they go and get tests done, and they're like, oh, it comes back and says I'm in a normal range. Um, I'd love to talk about what is a normal range or what is in fact a healthy range, because I know that. Uh, normal and healthy aren't always the same thing can can we talk about um you know what what to look for if you are um, how actually we should start with how to test uh if you are convinced it still is thyroid and what you should be looking for well you, you make a great point and to take your the, the scenario that you just painted a step further sometimes what happens is people think that they have a thyroid problem they get some testing done they're told everything is normal and then they go back on the internet and they find out that they haven't done enough testing or thorough enough testing or the ranges haven't been narrow enough and there may be a time and a place for that but i think that 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 approach is oftentimes uh, overstated and we don't need to necessarily get more and more meticulous with our thyroid assessments, because what I see happen in the majority of cases is we create a problem where there is none. And ultimately, what we want to do is get someone to the root cause of their symptoms, of their problem, and not continue down a path of thyroid deeper and deeper and deeper to only discover that even though you, let me maybe paint it this way a little more simply. Someone does a normal thyroid test, comes back normal, then they do an expanded thyroid panel with uh, reverse T3 and free T3, and they look at these very narrow ranges, and aha, now there's a thyroid problem, or so they're told. But then what they do to treat that doesn't help, right? And so that's what I'm trying to prevent people you know, with the, today's conversation from having a better understanding and, and a more practical way that we can approach this. So to your question of you know levels there's there's a couple of things that are important in terms of you know how we wade into trying to evaluate is this truly a thyroid problem or not um, and I guess let me take a step back and give some of the symptoms because that that is one of the first layers that can help with this and then if the symptoms flag then we can look deeper into some of the lab work and other diagnostics there's a lot of symptoms that you hear about being attributed to thyroid. And to be truthful, I think a lot of those haven't really been validated. And when I say validated, what do I mean? I mean, has has a group of scientists or clinicians tested the hypothesis, does this symptom correlate with a thyroid problem? Uh, you know, sometimes what happens is we, you know, things things that we read in the textbook may show that you need thyroid hormone for the production of bile and if you know then reason would suggest if you don't have adequate thyroid hormone you may not have adequate bile and that may cause constipation right so that theoretically is great but to validate something we need to actually look at 
people in a real world setting and try to figure out, does this symptom accurately predict hypothyroidism? So that has been done, and I'd like to share you know, quickly what I think the most accurate and evidence-based symptoms are. And if people wanted to look up this reference, the study that looked at this was entitled Hypothyroid Symptoms and the Likelihood of, of Overt Thyroid Failure, a Population-Based Control Study. A popula- Population-Based Case Control Study. So uh, this um, survey will give you a good indication if you have a true thyroid problem. So there were about 13 symptoms that were identified. Fatigue, dry skin, the sensation of something being stuck in your throat, difficulty swallowing, pain in the front part of the throat, wheezing, shortness of breath, breath, palpitations, meaning your heart feels like it's kind of racing, constipation, hair loss, dry skin, restlessness, fluctuations in mood, fatigue, and vertigo or feeling of dizziness. And here's what's important also. If someone has to report three or more of these symptoms, and if they do, that is significantly associated with risk for a thyroid condition. And it's also important that people have both the symptom of fatigue and dry skin present. Uh, when both of those symptoms, uh, when when one of those symptoms were not present, it became less, much less likely that someone actually would have hypothyroidism. So it's important to see both fatigue and dry skin, and then one other of these symptoms that were listed off. So that tells you that there's a good chance that you have a you know, thyroid condition, an, an overt thyroid condition based upon symptoms. So I just wanna put that out there. But then the, the next level of the questioning is how can I kind of figure this out in terms of lab work and try to be a little more definitive and move beyond just symptoms? Because the symptoms can be kind of dicey because they're a bit nonspecific. So you have to first establish, is this truly a thyroid problem or is this symptoms that just look like a thyroid problem? Um, And the first step in that process is figuring out, are you hypothyroid or are you not? And what that simply means is, do you not have adequate levels of thyroid hormone in your blood? And so if you do not have adequate levels of thyroid hormone in your blood, you're going to need thyroid hormone replacement medication, at least in the short term. Um, If you have adequate levels of thyroid hormone, then you will not need medication in the short term. And it's more likely a functional problem, meaning that the thyroid hormone levels are generally adequate, but there's something else like inflammation that's causing these thyroid-like symptoms. So in figuring that out, it's actually, that determination is actually fairly straightforward and fairly simple. You want to look at a TSH and a T4, and you want to look at the conventional ranges of TSH and T4. And if according to the conventional range, you're high in TSH and low in T4, then that diagnoses you as hypothyroid and you will need thyroid hormone medication. So that's a very simple determination, right? Someone, if, if we play by that rule, then we can very, very easily see if someone is truly hypothyroid and needs medication or if someone is not. Now, there's an in-between known as subclinical hypothyroidism. And this is where someone has elevated TSH, again, according to the conventional range, and normal T4, according to the conventional range. And there's debate here whether or not this group of people requires or will benefit from 
thyroid hormone replacement medication. And there, without getting too into the details, if someone has a TSH above 10, then they most likely will benefit from thyroid hormone medication. If someone does not have a TSH above 10, then it's less likely that they're going to need it. With one caveat, which is the younger someone is, then the higher the probability that they may benefit from medication because we do see an age-associated increase with TSH that is natural. So meaning that someone who is 65 would naturally be expected to have a higher TSH than someone who is 15. Um, also, for those who are pregnant or trying to become pregnant, then the treatment of this subclinical hypothyroid with thyroid medication has been shown to be very important. So that's kind of the, the weight in and there's something that people may be asking, which is, well, what about the functional ranges? What about the ranges that are more narrow? And in my experience, as someone who for a few years ran these panels, I have not found those to be needed. Because quite simply, if someone is not hypothyroid or potentially subclinical hypothyroid, then they don't truly have a thyroid problem and that can be addressed functionally. We still want to act preventatively if they have Hashimoto's autoimmunity. We still want to try to prevent any further uh, you know, change, negative changes in the thyroid gland. Yes, we still want to be proactive, but I, I don't think that the highly narrow ranges and being very meticulous has a large impact on the way people end up feeling. And I say that because I chased down those more narrow ranges for a while and tried to manipulate people's lab work into those narrow ranges. And what I ended up finding was the person in the lab work oftentimes didn't fit because we ended up treating just the numbers and not the person. So there are some broad strokes here with treating overt hypothyroidism and potentially subclinical hypothyroidism with thyroid medication, absent those being present, then medication's probably not going to be needed and we're probably looking more so at a functional problem that requires examination of an issue outside of the thyroid. Mm, that's very interesting. And I'm, I'm just thinking for any of the listeners, uh, I know that many of my listeners submitted lots of questions when they knew I was interviewing you around the thyroid. But for those that, um, you know, perhaps are wondering, what does the thyroid actually do? And, and it, why is it important to the body? Perhaps we should, and we should have probably started there first. Can you just talk about the, the, the function of the thyroid and, and why, um, you know, its role in our, in our system? Sure, yeah, because we're kind of diving right into the deep end of this conversation. Um, uh, yeah, essentially, the, the, the thyroid produces, of course, thyroid hormone. The, the brain releases a hormone called TSH, and that communicates to the thyroid gland, which is in the throat, which produces prominently T4. And then T4 goes out throughout the body and eventually becomes converted into T3, which is what has the effect on a cellular level. And... Um, cellularly, the to put it really simply, thyroid hormone helps regulate the metabolic rate of cells. And so it's foundationally, of course, very important because if you have impaired metabolism, either too high or too low in cells, that can cause problems. And some of the most classical symptoms of hyperthyroidism and hypothyroidism, so high or low respectively, help illustrate how this plays out in, in a human, in, in, you know, physio physiologically. If someone is hyperthyroid, they tend to be sped up, they tend to be hot, they tend to lose weight, they may have diarrhea, they may have oily skin. 
Um, and then on the other end of the spectrum, people with hypothyroid, they feel tired, they feel cold, they feel slow, they feel constipated, uh, they have dry skin. So we, we kind of see this metabolic rev up or this metabolic slowdown, uh, generally speaking. And I mean, there's nuance there because ironically, sometimes people with hyperthyroid actually end up becoming fatigued because after a while, if your body is running too revved up, your body just can't handle that revved up state. And ironically, people with too much thyroid hormone actually end up feeling fatigued also. So um, balance is really key. And I just make that uh, that small tangential remark there because sometimes I think people think they need more and more thyroid hormone because it's going to make them feel better. But it's important to understand that people with too much thyroid hormone can have some of the same symptoms like fatigue, for example, uh, that people with not enough thyroid hormone have. And so I think that's a great explanation of the hyper versus hypothyroid um, condition. What about Hashimoto's and Graves' disease, which also affect the thyroid? Mm -hmm. What's the difference with them? So those are really the uh, two of the main underlying conditions that will push someone to either be hyperthyroid or hypothyroid. And there's kind of two aspects of thyroid to look at, which is what type of uh, or how much hormone is the thyroid gland producing? And then what does the immune status of the thyroid gland look like? Meaning is, is there autoimmunity in the gland or is there not autoimmunity in the gland? Autoimmunity in the gland is the primary driver of hyperthyroidism, meaning too much thyroid hormone, or hypothyroidism, not enough thyroid hormone. In Graves' disease, you have antibodies against certain fractions the thyroid stimulating immunoglobulin and the thyroid receptor antibody. And those that form of autoimmunity essentially triggers the thyroid to make too much thyroid hormone. Conversely, in Hashimoto's, you have thyroid peroxidase antibodies and uh, thyroglobulin antibodies, and that causes a uh, inadequate production of thyroid hormone and causes hypothyroidism. And we've talked around the role of the gut and the thyroid. How are they connected? They're actually very intimately connected. I'm sure people have probably heard about the thyroid gut connection and about the thyroid autoimmune connection. So the gut connects the thyroid through both of those. Uh, the, the gut can, problems in the gut can directly cause hypothyroid-like symptoms. Problems in the gut can also contribute to thyroid autoimmunity. So the gut can cause thyroid symptoms, thyroid autoimmunity. The gut can also cause poor absorption of thyroid medication. So in some people who are struggling with their dose, the issue may be malabsorption. And when I say dose, I mean dose of thyroid medication. The issue may be malabsorption of the thyroid hormone. And the reason why they're not able to get their dose consistent or never feel like they've quite fully responded to thyroid hormone is not the thyroid hormone itself, but because they have inadequate absorption. And there have been trials done with people that have H. pylori or ulcers or other gastrointestinal conditions where they've given liquid thyroid hormone instead of tablet. And they've actually shown that these patients who are malabsorbing the thyroid hormone tablet before actually experience a, quite a nice normalization of their thyroid hormone levels and how they're feeling because the liquid is easier to absorb. So the gut definitely affects the thyroid. Um, one or two other things I should mention, there have been some studies done, one that showed that the treatment of H. pylori was actually able to improve thyroid autoimmunity. They took two groups of patients, 
uh, both that had thyroid autoimmunity, Hashimoto's, they tr and, and also had an H. pylori infection. They treated half of these patients for the H. pylori. They did not treat the other half. The half that was treated saw a marked and significant reduction in their thyroid antibodies in, the, in their Hashimoto's, whereas the group that was not treated did not. And there was one case study published where someone was treated for blastocystis hominins, which is a protozoa, kind of like an advanced bacteria, and treatment of that was shown to reduce the need for thyroid hormone medication, improve symptoms, and improve thyroid autoimmunity. So there's definitely a gut uh, thyroid connection, and it runs the other way also, but I'll pause there for a second in case there's anything you wanted to ask me about with, with uh, those remarks. That was going to be a question, but I think before we move into the the reverse flow of the thyroid affecting the gut, I'm wondering if there are particular conditions in the gut that are more linked to issues with the thyroid or if it's just gut health in general. Well, like I mentioned a moment ago, we have some data for H. pylori infections, so that would be one. And we have a case study for blastocystis hominins, so that would be another. Um, I'm inclined to think that gut health in general is going to be shown to impact the thyroid, but we'll probably also find some nuance, meaning not all gut conditions will affect the thyroid exactly the same. Nonetheless, I think the, the foundational take home is if you have significant problems in the gut, that is certainly not going to be helping your thyroid. And by addressing those, you stand to improve your thyroid. But I think we're going to learn a lot more about this in the coming years. And there's a lot of discussion in the SIBO community around um, thyroid. Do you see um, in your own clinical practice that people with SIBO have, uh, have a higher chance of having issues with their thyroid? Or is it really that the SIBO is causing and the other gut issues that they're experiencing is causing these types of symptoms? Well, it's a good transition to the next um, point of the flow, which is from thyroid to SIBO, uh, because there was recently a, a study published that examined a, a large group of patients, I believe it was about 1,800, and the, the researchers were trying to figure out what other conditions might be present that increase the risk of SIBO. So they looked at people who have had intestinal surgery. They looked at people who have uh, or who are on immunosuppressive medication. They, they looked at people who've been on acid-suppressing medication. They looked at people who are hypothyroid and, and don't know it yet and, and haven't been on medication. And they looked at people who were hypothyroid and now have been on medication for a while. And what was found is very interesting was that having intestinal surgery increase your risk of SIBO, no surprise there, but you were more at risk for SIBO if you were hypothyroid, and you were even more at risk for SIBO if you were on thyroid medication. Uh, in fact, the, they flowed in that order where the being hypothyroid and the being on thyroid medication were actually found to be two of the most significant predictive factors that would uh, put someone at risk for SIBO. So we do see that there is, for some reason, a connection between being hypothyroid or being on thyroid medication and having SIBO. Now, the easiest thing to try to connect there is thinking, well, if you're hypothyroid, then you'll have slow motility and that's causing the SIBO. But people who are being treated for hypothyroidism had more of a risk than people who were overtly hypothyroid. Also, people who were, um, 
so people who are um, I'm sorry, people who are on medication for their hypothyroid had more risk than those who were overtly hypothyroid, but also patients that were hyperthyroid, meaning they had too much thyroid hormone, were also at increased risk for SIBO. So it probably does not mean that the thyroid motility connection has a significant impact on SIBO, at least according to this study. And what it may mean, and this is my speculation, but what it may mean is that there is something common to the underlying pathophysiology of thyroid disease that increases one's risk for SIBO, potentially the, the inflammation that is a byproduct of the autoimmunity has some negative effect on the gut and that predisposes people for SIBO, maybe, but for whatever reason, yes, it's been documented, at least according to this one study, that if you're hypothyroid, hyperthyroid, or on thyroid medication, you're at an increased risk for SIBO. That is fascinating. And uh, what's your advice to anyone who's listening that's like, that's me, I'm I'm on thyroid medication. Oh my gosh, should I just stop it to pre- pre- uh, reduce my risk of SIBO? What, no, what no, should I people not, be I doing? <laughs> I would not recommend that at all. So yeah, thank you for asking that question because it's very important to... Uh, I have to. I have to make a mental note to start making that that qualifier when I talk about this study going forward. Yes, I, w- I would certainly not recommend anyone stops their thyroid medication because again, it's it's probably not the medication. It's probably the underlying thyroid disease that has. Again, this is just my opinion, but it's probably the underlying thyroid disease that has. Uh, it, that's the culprit for this increased risk of SIBO. So you're certainly not going to do yourself any favors, in my opinion, if you, you were diagnosed as hypothyroid and then decided to go off your medication. So I definitely would not do that. But what I'd recommend that you do is don't pigeonhole yourself in terms of how you're looking at your healthcare, right? Um, if you have gotten your thyroid hormone levels generally normal, and that's why coming back to my earlier comments, I don't recommend these super meticulous thyroid tests. If you've gotten your thyroid hormones generally into the normal range and you're still not feeling well, look to a lateral system of the body because that is more likely where your problem is coming from. And like we just talked about, SIBO and potentially H. pylori may be some of the chief culprits to investigate for an underlying gut driver of those symptoms. What if somebody, uh, is, they, they know they've got SIBO, many of my listeners have SIBO and they suspect there's thyroid issues, but the panels are coming back um, fine. It says they're in the normal range. Where else can they look? And perhaps they might have even done some uh, further investigation in terms of what's going on in their intestinal system. They might have done a stool analysis to see if there's any uh, infections or parasites what's your advice on what they can do next to keep exploring what might else be going wrong? Um, or, or is it just a case of if they've still got a case of SIBO and it's, it's active and present in their system, that that's pr- probably what they need to focus on first? So you're asking if, they're, if their thyroid tests are coming back normal or if, or if they've done a SIBO test and the gut tests are coming back normal? Well, I'm asking for the people that do have SIBO. They've been, they've had the, they've done the breath test. It's come back and shown that they've got SIBO, um, and they've they've tested for thyroid. It's coming back in the normal ranges, but they're still feeling those symptoms that you've talked about, um, and they're just thinking it can't, 
it can't, surely it's not just SIBO. Surely there's other things going wrong in my body. How do I find out what they are? Gotcha. Um, and yeah, and I guess my question is, you know, what do they focus on or should they just focus on treating the SIBO first? Well, that's, that's a good question because on the other side of the coin, we don't want to be pigeonholed into only thinking that the gut is the driver of the symptoms, right? So we, we want to make sure that we're practical on both sides of this. We don't want to be pigeonholed into just thyroid. We don't want to be pigeonholed into thing just gut. Uh, that being said, there's a few things that are important to kind of bear in mind because it's not necessarily like an algorithmic zero one black white answer to this question. If someone's been diagnosed with SIBO and they've treated SIBO and they've seen some response, but then they've relapsed, then that tells you you're in the right ballpark. It's just perhaps you haven't found the right treatment, the right duration of treatment, the right follow-up after treatment, what have you, right? So if you've partially responded to your SIBO treatment, that tells you that you're moving in the right direction. Now, what if you haven't responded at all? Well, it depends. It depends how in-depth have you gone into your SIBO treatment. Did you try one round of rifaximin and that's it? Well, that's not a really you know good shake at trying to resolve your SIBO. Now, if you've Conversely, if you've tried rifaximin, maybe you've tried some other herbal antibiotics, maybe you've tried some probiotics, maybe you've tried some elemental dieting, um, maybe you've tried some of the SIBO diets, maybe you've also incorporated in along with that intermittent fasting. So you've you've really tried to come at improving your gut your gut health, excuse me, from multiple angles, and you're still seeing little to nothing in the terms in terms of symptomatic improvement then that's the time at which I'd start thinking about these things a little more laterally and thinking, you know, maybe it's not just a gut issue here. Maybe there's something else with it. And it's not to say that you can't investigate a thyroid problem and a gut problem at the same time. But I would come back to my earlier comments of the thyroid evaluation is fairly simple. And it's really the gut in my mind that's a bit harder to get sorted out. Um, we fairly routinely will test both thyroid and gut at the same time. And then quite simply, if there's an overt thyroid problem that requires medication, we get someone on a medication and we can go into details about medication recommendations in a moment if you want, but we get them on some medication if they need it to make sure that their thyroid hormone levels are generally adequate at the same time as we start treating their SIBO. Um, if someone comes in already on thyroid medication, we'll do a test to make sure that their levels are still generally normal. And if they are, we'll focus on the SIBO and make sure we go through a good, uh, you know, a good therapeutic uh, routine of trying to improve their gut health. And if after going through a fair shake of the, the available options that I just mentioned, we're still seeing little to no symptomatic response, then we start looking at something else completely. And it's probably not the thyroid that we're going to look at there. We're probably going to look at it, even another system outside of the gut and the thyroid. So I guess the, the, the take home there is, um, you know, we want to not pigeonhole ourselves into one system, but for a system, you know, for a given system, we also want to make sure that we don't just try one thing and then give up on that system and then just chase another system and chase another system and chase another system. That's great advice. And uh, I hear from people from all around the world who are chronically unwell and so many of them are um, in that category of people who have 
aren't seeing much improvement from SIBO treatment um, and they're starting to feel a bit desperate because they're thinking, is this it? Is this life? I'm, I'm not improving. And so I think um, I really like what you've, what you've said about not pigeonholing yourself into one uh, sort of classification and looking at what other systems may need support or might be malfunctioning um, to be keeping your condition with SIBO where it's at. Let's talk about medication <laughs> and how we uh, – so if someone has come back and it has shown that they are um, hypo or hyperthyroid, um, what's next when they, when they are clinically diagnosed as, yes, <laughs> there is an issue? So there, there's maybe two components of, of treating thyroid. I just want to make sure to kind of drop this hook here so that we hit both of them. There's treating the thyroid hormone levels, and then there's treating the thyroid autoimmunity. So to your question, to the thyroid hormone levels, um, and I'll speak to hypothyroid because hyperthyroid is it's a little gonna it's a little less common, uh, and it's a little different. And there is an article on my website that goes into a, a pretty detailed overview of the treatment options for hyperthyroidism and or Graves disease if someone has it. So if you if you go to my website and type in Graves, you know, you may have to scroll through a few of the things that come up in the search uh, feature, but you should find an article, not a podcast, not a video, but an, an article that's pretty well written and lays all this out. But to hypothyroidism, you know, there's there's a few broad strokes here. Again, thinking about the the, the general things that we have to do and not getting overly meticulous and then spinning our wheels. Um, People have probably heard about there's T4 only medication and there's T4, T3 combination medication. And for the studies that have compared T4 only to T4, T3 combinations, about 48% of patients prefer T4, T3 combos and 18% of patients prefer T4 only. So it's not to say everyone is going to do better on T4 and T3. And let me explain what those medications are just in case people haven't heard of them. So Synthroid, Levothyroxine, those are gonna be your T4 only. Then you have things like Armorthroid, Naturethroid, Westroid, WP Thyroid. Those are all T4, T3 combinations. Or someone could take Levothyroxine with something like Cytomel, and that's a T4 plus a T3 medication to achieve a T4, T3 combination. So the majority of people do tend to feel better on a T4, T3 combination. But again, it's important not to just read that that's a preference on the internet and keep doing that if it's not working for you. Because some people actually feel a little bit worse when they are on a T4, T3 combination. Most commonly, they feel a little jittery, a little um, they have a little bit of insomnia, and they may even feel fatigued after a while because it over speeds them up. And these are people who tend to be strong converters from T4 to T3, so they don't really need the T3 support to begin with. Um, so that's you know, that's where I would start is looking at um, trying a T4, T3 combination, giving that a couple dose adjustments. And if it doesn't seem to be working after giving your doctor a few months some monitoring and some dose adjusting, then you may want to try just a T4 only. Now, if neither one of those work for you and you keep having a hard time getting your levels stable, you may want to try a liquid form of T4. And as I understand it, I believe you can only get liquid T4. You may be able to have compounded liquid T3 also. Um, but if you have, let's say you have Crohn's disease or you have a pretty strong history of ulcers or you have a pretty severe case of SIBO that's 
you know, fairly uh, chronically relapsing and, and recalcitrant, then you may do better on a T4 liquid combination. There's one trade named under tyrosine because now what you're doing is you're compensating for, for malabsorption and that may help with, uh, with buffering some of that stuff out. So, um, those are some of the broad strokes that you'll probably see 80% of, of the potential gain regarding thyroid hormones by following some of those you know, broad recommendations. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey guys, just a quick note about my SIBO Christmas cookbook. I know that Christmas time can fill you with absolute dread as you think, what on earth am I going to eat this festive season? Well, never fear, I've come to the rescue with the SIBO Christmas cookbook. It's based on the biphasic diet by Dr. Narala Jacoby and provides a range of delicious recipes that you can use this festive season. All recipes are 100% gluten-free and soy-free and there's plenty of dairy-free, grain-free, sugar-free and low FODMAP options available. All of the recipes include the Australian and the US ingredient names, measurements, temperatures, and that makes it super easy to follow recipes this festive season. Choose from really sensational appetizers or entrees. I've got a great range of side dishes which you can pair with your meat or fish or seafood that you cook for your main meal. And there are sensational dessert recipes included, as well as some really gorgeous baked goods. Have you been missing out on gorgeous little gingerbreads? Well, you've got them in this cookbook. They're so delicious. I know that this Christmas cookbook will make your Christmas even easier because you'll know that every single recipe within the cookbook is suitable for a SIBO diet. You can order it online immediately and have the cookbook delivered to your inbox within seconds. It couldn't be easier. Head to thehealthygut.co forward slash shop to get your hands on the world's first and only SIBO Christmas cookbook. Happy cooking, everybody. And how do those conditions like SIBO and Crohn's actually affect the ability of the gut to um, absorb the thyroid medication? Well, it's, it's just simple malabsorption that we see associated with those symptoms. So it's, it's not anything highly specific per se. It's just when people have chronic inflammatory conditions in the gut, they don't absorb many things as well. And one of those would be hormone, like thyroid hormone. Mm. Mm. 
What about um, other conditions that people can often experience? Um, you know, I, I seem to uh, hear from the people that have multiple things. So they might have SIBO, they might have Crohn's, they might have MTHFR. Um, they've, they've kind of got a whole gamut of things. <laughs> Is um, are, are you seeing that, that people are having multiple uh, conditions interplay with each other and uh, and do are they sort of uh, working against each other or working with each other to keep a person sick? So so for a big another really popular thing that people kind of go diving into is the MTHFR um, SNP or gene mutation uh, all around methylation. Is there a connection between methylation and thyroid? Well, um, two things. Certainly, the only two conditions that you have to worry about are not thyroid disease and SIBO. There's definitely more to it than that. However, the important thing is trying to have a bit of a hierarchical way that you approach this. Because if we try to address everything at once, that is not efficient and, in my opinion, it's not effective. But we rather want to try to establish a hierarchy that we can work through where we start with the conditions that are the most foundational or the systems that are the most foundational and then work our way from there. So I would put the gut at the base of that you know, pyramid or, or as the first area to address in that hierarchy. Um, and I'd put overt hypothyroidism you know, right there with it. Uh, th there are all sorts of other things that may be a problem, but I think most experts in those given subsets would agree that if you have uh, mold toxicity and you have a problem with your gut, you need to get your gut in the best working order you reasonably can first before we start treating you for the mold. So I think there's pretty general agreement on that. So it's not about trying to be you know, Mr. Know-it-all and, and be able to tackle all these things, you'll drive yourself crazy. Try to have a hierarchy through which you work, and that's where starting with the gut is very important. To the point of MTHFR, I am not an expert here, but I'm also not a fool, and I do think that the clinical utility of MTHFR has been grossly overstated. Now, there was a review paper published recently that also concluded that the clinical utility of MTHFR is pretty non-consequential, meaning it does not seem to have much benefit at all. I also had on the podcast someone who is an expert in methylation, Dr. Kara Fitzgerald, and she did an amazing job of kind of reaffirming that intuitive feeling that I was getting with some very important facts. And I can't provide all those facts here, but a couple that are salient. One, some of the best data we have looking at the clinical utility of MTHFR shows it has little to no clinical utility, despite the fanfare on the internet. The other is that overmethylation is also a problem, and that can increase risk of certain cancers. So, you know, there, there's maybe a bit of an obsession with methylation, but you know, biology is really predominantly all about balance. And so it's important to remember that hypomethylation is a problem. So isn't hypermethylation. And that can be, that can propagate certain cancers. And she recommends taking a more upstream approach where, uh, sure, there may be a time and a place for more specific testing and treatment, but she recommends things like starting with the gut, healthy diet and lifestyle, and then focusing on methylation adaptogens. There are certain herbs that are adaptogenic for methylation. They don't push it one way or the other. So in short, I think 
um, and you know, I say this with all due respect to people who are, you know, methylation experts or what have you, um, but I do think that the clinical utility of that has been hugely overblown, and I think it's not nearly as complicated as it needs to be. Um, and we need to take a big step back from that argument and remember what Einstein said, which is, if you can't explain something simply, you do not understand the problem well enough. And with most of the methylation stuff I see on the internet, if I'm just being really frank and candid, it is so debilitatingly complex that that is a, a huge admonition that we really don't know what we're doing there. And then when we look at some of the other well-performed clinical reviews and we see the researchers concluding that the clinical utility of MTHRF tests MTHFR testing is, is pretty much nil, then I think we see a picture start to emerge that we need to all take a big step back from that and, and think through this a little more logically and a little more practically. I agree with you uh, completely. And I, it's so interesting. I, I'd never even heard of methylation or MTHFR until I, uh, I was well and truly in the in the you know knee deep in the SIBO journey of my own experience with SIBO. And no one could everyone that I had spoken to uh, couldn't explain it to me in simple terms. And I used to just think, I'm a smart person. Why can't I understand what this methylation thing's all about? Why can't I understand what MTHFR is? And I agree with you. If if we can't explain it simply, then we don't know what it is. And it was actually when I was in Los Angeles um, Oh, just a month or so ago, and I was interviewing Dr. Adam Sanford for the podcast. And I said to him, you know, actually before we even pressed record, I was telling him that my frustration, I couldn't get my head around methylation. And he gave me such a simple explanation. And I said, oh, finally, someone who obviously well, uh, knows yeah. what I, it actually is can tell me in simple yeah. terms. I think the, the explanation of, of methylation is actually quite simple when you, when you come at it from a 30,000 foot perspective. What I'm referring to is how do you test and how do you treat these litany of single nucleotide polymorphisms that come back on some of these genetic tests like MTHFR. That is where the wheels completely fall off this simple explanation argument. Uh, defining methylation, pretty simple, but clinically, what does this test mean? What do you do about it? You ask three different experts, you're going to get three different answers. Um, and, and so that's, that's more so what I'm referring to. Yeah. I also really liked what you said around um, looking at the the base and starting there. So looking at the gut, the gut being a, a pretty significant um, system that we need to improve before we go elsewhere. And I definitely see a lot of people, hear from a lot of people who are going down rabbit hole after rabbit hole after rabbit hole. They're reading blogs and posts on forums and they're they're thinking that sounds like me I'll go down that road then I'll go down that road they're self-diagnosing they're kind of getting obsessed about research and um I have been that person, so I, I talk from personal experience on it, um, particularly for those of the, the people that are listening to the podcast that may not have um, a great option for their primary care physician. They might not feel supported by their primary care physician, and so they feel like they really need to take um, the research into their own hands. Um, but I really liked what you said uh, just around, you know, let's look at the gut. If the gut is in a really bad state, then let's treat that. Uh, it's going to be difficult to or you you know you may be wasting time focusing on smaller systems if the gut is still highly compromised mm -hmm. and i also think it's really important just as a, a general kind of philosophical principle for how we approach practice 
it's important to remember that what we tell people has a big impact. And so we should be very discerning and conservative in what we say. And we should also be willing to criticize the way we practice and what we do and be okay with the fact that some of what we do is not going to be highly effective, not be accurate, and simply not be right and require amendment in the future. And I can speak for myself when I say that I'm not doing things the same way now I was seven years ago. And as someone who's a specialist in the gut, I'm actually doing quite a bit less testing and, and more simplified treatment because as I've gotten better and I've continually asked myself, what here is, is really validated, what here is really effective, what here is really needed, and what don't I really need, and what is just bells and whistles and frivolous information that's not highly impactful, I've whittled down what I've been doing. And, and so I just want to maybe, maybe paint the perspective of, I definitely am a bit of an open critic of, of not doing things that aren't needed, but I'm an open critic of these things because I have learned from my own self-criticism and become so much better because of it. So, you know, I would just invite people to, to try to you know, join me in the thinking that having someone criticize what you're doing is not a bad thing. If you can take that and ruminate on it and think on it and go, you know, really run through that question, you can either defend what you're doing and, and, and substantiate it, or you may realize, you know what, I can't really defend this. I can't really say this has been effective. And if you can just look at what you're doing objectively, not try to emotionally defend, uh, defend it because it's what you think, but really say, you know what, someone said that SIBO breath testing may not be you know, highly important in the management of IBS. Yes, you know what, there's actually some data to support that. And even though I've performed clinical research using the SIBO breath test and found it to be very important, you know, I also have to be objective and honest with what I'm doing and, and be able to say a SIBO breath test is not the end-all be-all for successfully managing a case of, of IBS. So I just think it's important that we're able to criticize ourselves so that we're always uh, exposing our blind spots or our weak points so that we can get better at what we're doing so that we can get better at helping people. I so sorry for the rant. I think that's wonderful. <laughs> no, I agree with you. And I wish that all doctors were like that. I've definitely had my experience of doctors that aren't being self-critical and, and looking at them, you know, looking at where perhaps they need to, um, you know, just question what they're doing. <laughs> I know there's plenty of people listening that have had that experience. Um in terms of, um, you'd mentioned pulling back on some of the testing that you do. Are you able to share with what what you feel are the important tests that if someone presents in clinic with, uh, you know, digestive issues, what you would say? Yes, I will normally run these tests, but I won't spend my time running these other tests. Sure. Um, so, I guess first I'll just rattle off some that I've I've been doing a lot less. Um, Adrenal testing, I've pretty much stopped doing that for years. I find that pretty close to useless, if I'm just be really give it to you straight here. Um, adrenal testing, food allergy testing, leaky gut testing, um, I've pretty much stopped doing those. Maybe, you know, occasionally, but just really have not found it to be highly helpful and, and you know, um, the the rationale behind behind those is maybe another conversation, but um, those are the ones I've cut out. And in terms of things that I do more so routinely, I will do a you know a thyroid profile like I, I discussed a moment ago that that is consolidated to more so 
TSH, T4, free T3, and if it's suspected, thyroid antibodies, and then a SIBO breath test in you know most cases, and a upper and lower GI profile, and you know that maybe is kind of vague, but that would include H. pylori breath test. That would include um, stool testing that has your kind of full ovin parasite and, and other protozoa and um, you know associated markers, and then either a blood or an anti a blood or a um, uh, saliva antibody profile that will look at things like candida antibodies, toxoplasmosis antibodies, um, and some things that aren't best able to be uh, tested for via stool antigen uh, testing. Uh, also in there, you can do H. pylori antibodies, which can be very helpful. So that's um, those are some of the, the, the key you know, tests that are more foundational to what I do. And there are some that are ordered in other instances, but you know, that's that's the majority. Also, I should also mention that sometimes we run some other gut inflammatory and autoimmunity markers. We'll look for parietal cells in the stomach, and we'll look for inflammatory markers associated with IBD if we suspect that, and also the, um, the autoimmune antibodies associated with IBD also. And, you know, our, our testing is not very complex. And I know sometimes people say if we're not assessing or guessing, and I understand where that's coming from. But the other side of that coin is if you're assessing too much, you're crippling yourself with information and you're unable to really get the the clinical, um, you know, connect the clinical dots and learn from what you're doing. Because if you're doing too much, if you're testing too much, if you're treating too much, it's very hard to know what's working, what's not working, what's important and what's noise. So I would make the opposite counter argument back to that if we're not assessing we're guessing, which would be if you're doing too much, you're crippling your ability to ascertain what's effective and what's not. Mm, that's very interesting. And it's it's kind of like data overload, isn't it? Where you've exactly. just you've got all of this information, but uh, what do you do with it next? Exactly. And you know, there's one thing, um, do you wanna I wanna make sure not to gloss over this, but we didn't talk about thyroid autoimmunity and treat, direct treatments for thyroid autoimmunity, which we probably definitely should. Um, yes, let's talk about that. Okay. Because you know, there there's a few really important things here that I want to make sure that I have a chance to throw out there. Um, gosh, where to begin? Okay. <laughs> I guess where to begin is is maybe uh, having a non heretical view on thyroid antibodies. And the reason I say that is because we, we're learning more about thyroid antibodies and, and the thyroid antibodies will tell you if someone has Hashimoto's or another form of thyroid autoimmunity or not. So it's, it's important and I recommend that we test them in the cases that are suspect for thyroid autoimmunity or that have thyroid autoimmunity and we're trying to monitor. But just like we don't look at a fasting blood glucose as either positive or negative, but we rather look at it in a stratification of risk, meaning, you know, if you're above 99, you're considered, it's considered positive. But if you're 103, we don't treat you like you're 203, right? So there's a difference in terms of how high the fasting blood glucose elevation is and what risk that correlates to and what action that correlates to. And it seems that the same thing needs to be done with thyroid antibodies. So if you're just over the reference range or you're 30 times the reference range, these are different scenarios. 
Why this is important is because I see a lot of patients that actually have what we would consider a fairly you know, low positive level of antibodies, meaning their antibodies are positive, but they're not ridiculously positive, but they're still scared about their thyroid autoimmunity. They're still doing intervention after intervention, trying to drive it down even further, but they've actually gotten their antibodies to what could be considered a clinically acceptable level. And there was one study in particular that looked at this, and they essentially tracked a number of thyroid patients over a number of years. And what they found was that when the thyroid antibodies were 500 or below, the risk of future progression of the thyroid condition was actually minimal. So 500 seemed to be an important cutoff. Now, I've been saying for a few years before I read this study, what I noticed in the clinic was that when someone comes in with a thyroid antibody, and, and most of the data here is with TPO antibodies, just to clarify. So TPO, TPO antibodies between 100 and 300. I would associate that to a clinical win, meaning people tended to be feeling well, they sometimes needed less thyroid hormone medication, and, and generally they were looking much improved. And the people who looked much improved, when we looked back at their antibodies at that time, they were between 100 and 300. They may have come in with their antibodies at 1,000, 1,200, 1,500, but after doing what it is that we do in the clinic, their antibodies now are hovering between you know, 100 and maybe three, 400, right? So my inkling was thyroid antibodies lower like that in the low hundreds are actually a clinical win. This study reaffirms that. Now I should also speak to that there's one or two studies out on the internet uh, that were thankfully brought to my attention by some people in my audience that showed that concluded TPO antibodies above 100 were correlated with poor psychological well-being. And so some of our audience members asked, well, doesn't this kind of poke a hole in the hypothesis? And me being objective, I said, well, let me look at this because if I'm wrong, I want to be the first to update that. When you actually read the study, they defined TPO antibodies being positive as 100 or higher. So it wasn't that it was being over 100 was associated per se with poor psychological well-being. It was that being positive for Hashimoto's was associated with poor psychological well-being. And they defined positive Hashimoto's as 100 or above. When you look at the average of what the antibody levels were in those that reported poor psychological well-being, the antibodies averaged at 1,100. Again, that reaffirms my hypothesis that you know if we're in the low hundreds, we're at minimal risk. But if we're much higher than that, you know above 500 and definitely above 1,000, then we want to start doing some work. So this, I think, sets a bit of a barometer for knowing when you need to act on the thyroid autoimmunity and when you're kind of done, when you don't need to keep doing more, doing more, doing more, eating more strict, being more afraid of gluten, being more afraid that you have you know that you have this brewing autoimmune condition that's going to manifest as other problems. If you can get yourself down to the low hundreds, you're pretty much done in my opinion. Go out, live your life. Don't do anything stupid, right? Don't, I mean, don't uh, just disregard your health completely, but you know, you don't have to be fearful and be in this highly contracted state of, of really being diligent about your health. You can loosen up the boundaries a little bit and enjoy yourself. Now, 
Um, I guess let me pause there before I go into some of the specific treatments for autoimmunity. I, I'm just sitting here nodding my head agreeing <laughs> with you completely, um, particularly that point around just, you know, live life where we only get one shot at it and it can be so easy for us to just get so obsessed over living the perfect healthy life that we forget how to have fun. And I think having fun is really important in getting healthy and feeling great. It is. And it has been shown that stress fuels autoimmunity and there was actually um, a couple of studies published that, that kind of support this that they showed that in so I guess let me take a step back when people have elevated pro uh, when people have stress they have increased prolactin and this is a hormone and so stress increases prolactin and one study found that even a small even a mild elevation in prolactin predicted predicted a worse a worsening of thyroid autoimmunity so if we know that stress causes increased prolactin, and even a minimal increase in stress can increase prolactin, and that's been correlated with a worsening of thyroid autoimmunity. My question is, if someone is doing generally well and their antibodies are in the low hundreds, are we helping them or harming them by telling them that they still have autoimmunity, that there's still a risk of X, Y, or Z, and making them feel like there's this active inflammatory autoimmune process that's damaging them. I would submit that we're actually doing more harm than we are good if that's how we manage the conversation. Mm, I would agree. And, and I, the number of conversations I have with people, and it's, it goes along the lines of, I'm so stressed about d -d 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 whatever it is. And, and I just think there's so much stress about con these conditions that people are just, they're so fearful. And that is not helping us to get well. No, it's not. And it's, you know, I'm passionate about this because it's more common than people may think. And I see this when patients come in to my office and I spend some of my time talking them out of the problem they're convinced that they have from their reading on the Internet. And so it's it's not, you know, th these are fairly prevalent issues, I think. So anyway, you know, I, I make that comment or the, those lines uh, of comments to help people from going to a very fearful place. Fortunately, getting your gut healthy has been clinically documented in a few trials to significantly help with thyroid autoimmunity. And I think as we learn more about the gut, we'll see even more of that information start to be published. So definitely improving the health of your gut is a foundational item for improving most types of autoimmunity. I don't know if we can say all. I think theoretically we could say all. I just don't know if we have the data to support that. But certainly I think we could speculate and make that recommendation somewhat safely. In terms of things other than diet, lifestyle, and gut health, kind of the foundational pillars of autoimmunity and definitely thyroid autoimmunity, what else can we do? Well, vitamin D, duh, but there's an important few qualifiers there. We have a lot of data that associates low vitamin D to thyroid autoimmunity, but there have only been, I believe, two studies that have shown that supplementing with vitamin D improves thyroid autoimmunity. That is key. Association does not tell us cause and therefore does not tell us that a treatment of that association will be beneficial. So we do have two studies showing that supplementation with vitamin D can improve thyroid autoimmunity. One study in particular is noteworthy. Here's the backstory on this. When you start taking thyroid hormone medication, 
that has also been shown to improve thyroid autoimmunity. It's important we mention that. It's important that we're objective and we can give medication. It's 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 just deserve. You know, it's it's a hat tip when it's deserved, right? So, um, thyroid hormone medication has been shown to reduce thyroid antibodies. Great. One of the challenges can be if someone starts on vitamin D and thyroid hormone at the same time, we don't know where the benefit is coming from. And it's important as natural healthcare providers, we don't, you know, we're not smug and we fool ourselves into thinking because what we're doing is natural, it has to be better and treat the autoimmunity. We have to be open to the fact that, hey, thyroid medication has been shown to improve thyroid autoimmunity. So we, if we put someone on both vitamin D and the thyroid medication at the same time, we don't necessarily know where the benefit is coming from until this one study was performed. They put the newly diagnosed hypothyroid who also had Hashimoto's patients on levothyroxine. They were on it for six months. That gave enough time to account for whatever type of adjustment in the autoimmunity would occur from being on the thyroid medication. So after that six months, their their autoimmunity kind of leveled out and achieved whatever benefit it was going to achieve from the levothyroxine. Then they started them on vitamin D. And they noticed that vitamin D caused a significant improvement in their thyroid autoimmunity, even in women with semi-normal levels of vitamin D, meaning above 20. So we can nitpick, you know, is that considered deficient or sufficient? But it's certainly not grossly deficient. So we do have studies on vitamin D. Um, there's another study, a couple other studies that have shown that also magnesium, CoQ10, and selenium used together can improve thyroid autoimmunity and thyroid ultrasound structure. On thyroid ultrasound, you'll see what's known as hypoechogenicity, meaning the, uh, you know, a an ultrasound is kind of like a bat, right? It's, you know, how bats send out those sound signals and the echoes tell them what's around them. That's kind of how a ultrasound works. And when there is autoimmune damage to the thyroid gland, it causes a densening of the tissue. And so there's less echoing because things that are dense have less echo, right? Because you need to have an open space for an echo. Um, so magnesium, CoQ10, selenium have been shown to improve both thyroid autoimmunity and some of the thyroid structural changes via ultrasound assessment. There's an important caveat regarding selenium, but again, I'll, I'll pause there before I jump into that. <laughs> no, I think I'm happy for you to jump into that because I think that's uh, it's interesting to see where that's going. Okay. So with selenium... Again, this is where I think it's really important that we have to be objective in natural medicine. Just like we probably get irritated when a conventional doctor isn't willing to listen to us, we have to be able to criticize ourselves. And when there's data that maybe counters something that we believe, we have to be able to take that data at face value and realize we may be wrong or we may have to update the way that we're thinking. With selenium, the highest level scientific reviews, and I'm talking about a systematic review with a meta-analysis via the Cochrane database. So what's a systematic review with meta-analysis? It's essentially a summary of the available clinical trials. And then you do some math and you kind of assign a score. Um, maybe to put it simply, we can say that when we average all the clinical trials that have used selenium, it either has been shown to be helpful and helpful would be, you know, plus one, plus two, plus three, plus four, you know, gradually more helpful or harmful, or, or in this case, not helpful. So that would be negative one, negative two, negative three, negative four. So the high level reviews have found, have found no consistent benefit with selenium supplementation for thyroid autoimmunity. So 
you can do two things there. You can put your head in the sand and ignore that, or you can think about that and be open to the fact that there may be some updates that need to be made regarding selenium or think on that. So I chose to think on that. And when I thought on that and I looked at some of the details of these studies, it's been shown that most of the benefit for selenium supplementation is achieved at three months of supplementation, less or so at six. And then after six, the benefit of selenium supplementation becomes somewhat non-existent. So the summary of all the evidence found inconclusive data slash no benefit because it was lumping all these studies together. But when we start looking at these studies in time increments, we see that there does seem to be suggestion of benefit when selenium is used for three to six months. Why that is relevant is because it means you don't need to be taking selenium every day for the rest of your life if you have Hashimoto's. In fact, I would argue you may risk doing something unintendedly harmful to yourself if you're taking a high dose of selenium every day for the rest of your life. So short-term, probably repletion, or we can maybe say pseudo-repletion, because if you're not deficient, we can't say we're, we're repleting, but maybe we could also term an optimization of selenium intake can be helpful with thyroid autoimmunity. Beyond that three to six month window, the benefit becomes somewhat non-existent. If we connect that with the fact that we're looking at antibodies more conservatively and not having to have antibodies at zero or below 35, then you can stop taking selenium when you get your antibodies down into the low hundreds. Also, if you take selenium and you don't notice any change, you may not need it and you can stop taking it. Um, so, you know, these things can all be helpful, but it's important we look at these things conservatively and practically. We look for benefit. If we see no benefit, we stop the therapy because there's no point in pursuing a therapy that's not showing a clear benefit. Hmm. That's so interesting. We've talked about uh, the kind of medication or supplementation that can be taken. We have talked about stress um, and and uh, aiming to reduce stress. Is there any tips that you have on diet or any other lifestyle factors that you would recommend to patients around, uh, you know, helping supporting their thyroid? Well, um, you know, maybe maybe one quick thing is, you know, kind of some of my like closing remarks on this issue. Um, there's confusion about carbs and thyroid. And we've done a number of posts on this on my website, which people may want to just use the search box and search carbs and thyroid if you want to get the deep dive on this. But essentially, the thinking that a low-carb diet hurts your thyroid is wrong. Uh, what actually happens is you have a shifting of some of the fractions of thyroid hormone to compensate for the difference in diet. It's not a it's not a damaging change. It's just if you change your fuel intake, your hormones perturbate slightly to adjust to that. So nothing is harmed uh, in terms of damaging your thyroid from going on a low-carb diet. If you go too low-carb for too long, you can experience negative metabolic, uh, metabolic side effects and consequences, um, of which may be having your T3 be a little bit too low, but that doesn't, it's not damaging your thyroid gland. It's just your body is trying to adapt to too much of a deprivation type diet. So being too low carb can be negative for your metabolism, but it's not because it's damaging your thyroid. It's just, it's just that your body is essentially going into like a, a pseudo starvation response. Now for thyroid autoimmunity, there has been one study done that showed that by reducing um, grains, fruit, rice, breads, cereals, and pastas, 
and eating a carbohydrate content that was about 200 grams per day, which would be considered a lower or a moderately lower carb diet, there was actually an improvement in thyroid autoimmunity. So, um, you know, a, a moderately lower carb diet that also restricts some allergens has been shown to be helpful. What was nice about this study was it was an ad hoc diet, meaning they didn't give the participants a super strict diet to follow. And why that's relevant is because it shows, it displays that you can see improvement in your thyroid autoimmunity without eating like a nut and you know, never having any dietary derivation and being afraid of food, which probably causes more harm via the stress you feel about that than it does any kind of benefit. Um, so those are a few broad strokes. Um, we didn't get to iodine, which is a whole other can of worms. Maybe you know, maybe we can talk about iodine the next time because there's some important strokes for, for iodine. But um, for diet, I think there's just some simple principles that you can adhere to. Eat a moderate to lower carb paleo diet to start and see how you do. And then if after time that works for you, great. If you're feeling a little sluggish after a while or having carb cravings or insomnia or fatigue, you may want to bump up your carbs a little bit because some people do do better on a little bit of a higher carb diet. And with just some of those simple changes, you can see most of the benefit, I think, for thyroid autoimmunity. Mm. And I see a lot of orthorexia uh, coming through with the with the SIBO peeps out there that there's just so much fear around food and fear around adding new food and fear around trying new food, and uh, and it can be uh, you know it can be very um, damaging I think to a person's life when they just they just operate in a very narrow spectrum and particularly the stress I see in people just around eating uh, and I've got to say going um, you know I eat a very broad range diet these days and I can tolerate virtually everything and it's really wonderful <laughs> to not have to worry about what I'm eating. <laughs> and it, it, it's, it's more like we were talking about a moment ago. It's, it's more of a prevalent problem than, than I think maybe some people realize. And, and maybe for the health practitioners on the line, you know, we all want to help people. But I think it's important that we realize that if, if we give too strict of dietary mandates, then that may you know, we may be trying to help someone with those recommendations, but inadvertently we may actually be harming someone. So it's just important that we keep that in mind. It is definitely. Dr. Michael Ruscio, it's been uh, just a joy once again to have you on the Healthy Gut podcast and uh, and us just deep diving into thyroid. Uh, <laughs> we could do many podcasts with each other because uh, you're just um, such a wonderful guest and so knowledgeable. So thank you so much for coming on the show. Um you also have your own podcast and your website is just a wealth of information. Um, can you tell people what that is and also how they can reach out and connect with you if they'd like to? Absolutely. And thank you. This has been a lot of fun. I always always really enjoy chatting with you. The um, The website is drrusho.com, dr. R-U-S-C-I-O.com. I'm happy to say that my office is currently accepting patients also. So if people are really in need of help, um, we do see people via phone and Skype so we can help you out there. There's also an ebook on the website. Um, there's um, a print book on gut health that'll be hopefully out late this year. Uh, of course, podcasts are, are up there and our weekly videos and articles. And then also something that's a little bit more new to the offering is our Future of Functional Medicine 
review clinical newsletter. So if you're a clinician or just a really interested layperson, we have this monthly newsletter that consists of case studies and research studies and, and kind of me talking more to you know how to clinically apply all this stuff and what some of the clinical research is saying if people wanted to get a deeper dive into some of the you know really kind of nitty gritty application based aspects of this. I received that email and it, and it is great. I'm I am uh, I love learning more. I'm always learning, so it um, I can speak from experience. <laughs> great email <laughs> series. <laughs> Thank you once again for coming on the show today. Thank you. Does the thought of eating for Christmas fill you with absolute dread? Well, the good news is that I have a very special SIBO Christmas e-cookbook, which you can order and download immediately. It's perfect for Christmas meals and contains beautiful and delicious recipes that are SIBO friendly. So you can choose from a selection of appetizers or entrees, uh, beautiful side dishes, that can go along with the meat and seafood dishes that you create and we also have amazing desserts and very delicious baked goods that you can make for yourself or as a treat for somebody else. So make sure you head to thehealthygut.co forward slash shop and you'll be able to grab a copy of the SIBO Christmas cookbook today. Happy cooking. You've been listening to the Healthy Gut Podcast with your host, Rebecca Coombs. To learn more about the Healthy Gut or our podcast, head to thehealthygut.co forward slash podcast. And as we are fully funding this podcast, if you would like to help support the continuation of this podcast so that we can continue to bring you future episodes, all you need to do is make a contribution at thehealthygut.co forward slash podcast. We would like to thank Belinda Coombs for the production, editing and original music score of this podcast. To hear more of Belinda's music, head to soundcloud.com forward slash Belinda Coombs. The Healthy Gut Podcast is a production of The Healthy Gut. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.